Infinite Insights, 8 Episodes, 1 Legendary Actor. As our analysis of each performance draws to a close, we must explore the future of a franchise with open minds. 007 is, after all, just a codename, for it's the man behind the moniker with whom we build our bond, James Bond. I'm American film journalist Rupert Carmichael. Join me and our most beloved Bond, George Lazenby, for a tantalizing introspection about where Bond began and now where he's going next. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, this is Building a Better Bond. Once again, listeners, and for a final time to Building a Better Bond, I am Rupert Carmichael, and today we reach the point toward which this series was always building, building the bond of tomorrow, a better bond. We talk today about who will inevitably receive the torch from Mr. Daniel Craig and become the next 007 It is a topic to which there is no end of speculation, but speculation we needn't do. We have, of course, the foremost expert on the genre, on the craft, on the man, George Lazenby. George, thanks one more time for joining the show. Hi, you're welcome, Robert. I do want to clarify that as that torch gets passed, it will not be from Daniel Craig to the next person. The, The torch will be passed back to me so that I can bestow it to the next actor. Uh, it's a slight difference, but I, I think it's very important that we clarify that. And perhaps in this way, we are getting a preview of that moment of transition. Because today, we will go through an interesting and insightful and important exercise. That is an investigation about exactly what makes the best bond. And we'll explore it through the 4Ts method. It is a method patented for evaluating bonds of the past, but it can be used. It can be repurposed and refit to determine who might be the best next bond. You know, that's the beauty of the Fortis method. That's why I invented it, to analyze the past and predict the future. And, you know, Rupert, why do we have to predict the future if we have me right here, someone with a guiding hand and infinite wisdom into the future of the James Bond franchise? This is an interesting time now because as Daniel Craig, or Craigsby as I like to call him, reps his final Bond film, we essentially have a blank canvas. You know, we can do anything we want. There's no limits. No limits except for the limits imposed upon the role by the expectation of the public and the grandmasters that came before. Speaking of the public, though, George Lazenby, do you agree that at the end of the day, James Bond must perform? For the masses, he must entertain, delight, inspire the viewing public. I completely agree, Rupert. You know, you you took the words out of my mouth, which is the first time anyone has ever had the audacity to steal anything from me. So I'd like to warn you not to do that again. Message received, George, and I'll keep my hands to myself and allow the questions to be posed by that public themselves. We, in the run-up to this episode, have asked through the channels of the PBS and the BBC for viewers, listeners, and fans to write in with their suggestions, the purpose being so we can evaluate what the culture thinks it 
wants from James Bond and reflect on it through the eyes of George Lazenby himself. George, I have the submissions here in letter form, and I, I can read them. And, and then maybe, if you would, you can react to these suggestions. I think that's a great idea. I do want to point out that we culled from the best listener write-ins, and we figured out who came up the most. Who are these names that people kept referring to as the rumors, the ones that people thought have the ability to even fill the shoes of the next James Bond. Absolutely. And from that composite picture that was painted for us, we've come up with a few candidates for representatives of the ideas. This first letter comes from Steve Hughes of New Brighton, England. Steve writes, Dear Rupert and Mr. Lazenby, I believe a good James Bond must have gravity. He must have style, and he must have an intimidating yet inspiring presence on the screen. It is in my opinion that the time has come for us to shed the monoracial history of the role and open the role up to a new era. These reasons are the inspiration for my suggestion that Idris Elba, famous from his roles in The Wire and many other films and TV series, be considered. He is a man of massive stature and a perfect fit for our next James Bond. Thank you very much for taking my submission. George, Idris Elba is a very popular suggestion. It has been rumored that he's been in talks since even before Mr. Daniel Craig. A popular suggestion, but is it the right suggestion? George, Reflect. I like this bloke's letter from the start because he addressed me as Mr. Lazenby, but I think that was the high point of the note, and it went downhill from there. I'll tell you why. I've got no problem with Idris Elba as an actor or as a person. I think Steve made a valid point that for too long, James Bond has been monoracial, white to the layperson. And let me be clear, I have no problem with that. Looking to the future, we cannot label James Bond as white and I would like to point out that a lot of people have problems with this. A lot of different prestigious news websites have deemed Idris Elba not exactly what Ian Fleming described physically for James Bond. And these aren't, you know, alt-right Breitbart websites. This isn't even from Michael Richards' own personal blog. Th these are from people today that know a character and they don't want him to change. I don't have a problem with that. The problem I have, Rupert, with Idris Elba is that he's just too old. Idris has been in... The conversation for now approaching a decade and it cannot be overlooked that he is around the same age as roger moore when roger moore took the role he of course criticized for many other reasons one of which he was old when he began his part well, let's analyze this daniel craig has one more film a james bond film could take you know three to five years to make so we haven't even started that film yet we're already at least five years out by the time the next film gets rolling with idris elba that would be 10 years i guarantee they'd want him to sign at least a four picture deal rupert by the time his multi-picture contract would be up idris elba would be 197 years old this isn't a mathematics podcast you can listen to by the numbers on bbc it premieres every thursday at 9 p.m if you want that sort of conversation the point you are making specifics be darned is that idris elba is beginning his bid for the role late in the game and that might for many reasons already detailed in the show's previous episodes preclude him from doing his best possible job a fine response to a classic outcry for the next replacement and coming up next, I have a letter. This is from Leslie Mealman. She's from Los Angeles, California. She writes, 
Dear Rupert and George, I hope I can call you George. I know she's written George. If you wouldn't mind just saying Mr. Lazenby, I would prefer that. Absolutely. Dear Rupert and Mr. Lazenby. Thank you. I think personally, and I think this opinion reflects many others, that it's time for James Bond to not just be gritty, but also to have a stripe of attitude. I think we would be remiss not to consider one of England's foremost interesting, fun, and attitude-forward actors for the role. I speak, of course, of Tom Hardy. He is a bit of a bad boy, but cleans up great. I think he's a perfect fit for James Bond going forward. Thank you for your consideration. Well, so when she said gritty with a bit of attitude, I thought she was just talking about me. And it's that point of view that makes Tom Hardy a worthy consideration. He is Lazabiesque in that he is a man with a mouth. He's a man with personality. He's a man not afraid to do something that raises eyebrows. In his former roles, especially in the blockbuster hit Inception, he brought a very attitude-forward performance to an otherwise demure production. George, what do you think of Tom Hardy's consideration? Rupert, you say he has a mouth, but does he know how to use it? What is one of the most important T's of the four T's? Of course, you reference talk. Of course. Now, Rupert, think about it. Tom Hardy may have the look for James Bond, the grittiness, the attitude. But if you think back to his performance and really think hard, Rupert, have you ever heard Tom Hardy say a word, an actual audible word? Think about it. Memory is a fickle thing, George. And thinking back, I have the unassailable feeling that I have heard him speak words. If He's been an actor for nigh two decades. But at the same time, your question hangs like a specter in my mind. Because have I? Have I heard him speak a word? No, the, the answer is no. You may trick yourself into thinking you're hearing him say lines, maybe in Peaky Blinders or in Mad Max, but what you're actually hearing are different inaudible crooks. Hardy's diction has been criticized and applauded, depending on what side of the spectrum you fall upon. His unique blend of accent and vocal hoarseness gives him a distinct brand, but does it preclude him, as we're musing upon now, from being a man known for his one-liner? Well, Tom Hardy would be a no-liner. And that, I believe, we can all agree, is not enough lines. Another popular suggestion falls by the wayside as we move on to our final listener submission. This comes from, and this really is a treat, George, this comes from a member of the Hollywood elite, beloved on-screen darling for two decades, Sandra Bullock. Sandra writes, huge fan of the show, Rupert and Mr. Lazenby. It's a high honor afforded to you, George. You don't have to cover up the letter. I know she wrote George. She continues, it might seem self-serving. It might seem biased, but I have to throw a hat in the ring on behalf of my friend, personal confidant, and of course, co-star of the film Two Weeks Notice, Hugh Grant. Hugh has all the charm, all the looks, all the dapperness, and the bravado necessary to be the next James Bond and to be the Bond of the future. He has distanced himself from his niche roles as a romantic comedy actor in recent years, I think the time is now to embrace a future where Hugh can grant us all a new James Bond. Wow. You know when someone just tells you something that is almost so obvious that it's a miracle you never even thought of it yourself? I have that feeling very often in my conversations with you, George. It really takes me back to when Sean Connery 
was ending his tenure as James Bond, I had already made a lot of friends in Hollywood and different people in the acting community started a huge letter writing campaign to get me to be James Bond. Uh, I was relatively unknown at the time. And so Sandra doing this for her friend, Hugh Grant, is taking me back to that. And I, I respect her for that. Mm. Another notch in the belt that spans the globe of respect for Sandra Bullock. When you think about it, you know, he'd be a great fit. He is Britain's sweetheart. Everyone loves him. We could, you know, I'm, I'm just speculating here, maybe get Renee Zellweger in the mix. Who knows? She would make a strangely appetizing Bond villain. Yeah, she's very sinister. Uh, and I think she would be great opposite Hugh Grant. We've talked about, Rupert, I am not going to be the sole decision maker of who becomes the next James Bond, who picks up the mantle. But I can definitely weigh the scales. And for my money, I think Hugh Grant is a great option. He would take direction. In the future, I would like to have sort of a race banyan relationship to the Johnny Quest that is James Bond. And Rupert, in this scenario, I, I feel like you would be probably Dr. Quest. You know, you've got no business being in the action and you always get into some trouble and then we have to rescue you. I have to say, I was worried that I would be cast as Bandit in this extended metaphor. So Dr. Quest comes as a very welcome surprise. You were so close to being Haji, but I just can't picture you, you know, saying Sim Salabim and casting spells. That's a little above your pay grade. A fair, if not harsh critique. And you bring up an important point, George. And the point is, and this is something we've covered from the very beginning, you have too much power, too much sway in the industry, and it would be unfair in the extreme for you to cast a vote yourself. That's true. I have way too much power. I know how to wield it and how to yield it. And yield it you shall in what now comes to the zenith of this program's purpose. You're weighing in on the scales that scale to produce a possible pool of suggestees. It will come without an endorsement. But, listeners, if you are astute enough, you might be able to draw your own conclusions. Without further ado, let us dive in to the four T's and what each of them mean to be part of the perfect bond. Let's start, of course, with the clothes that make the man, the tuxedo. It is a great decision to start out with Tux. After all, this is something so iconic with James Bond and is something that has remained fairly constant with a few uh, differing details over the decades of James Bond. And I think it brings up the point that Bond needs to be authentic. But what authentic is changes over time. As you know, Rupert, in fashion, one day you're in and the next day you're out. Quote by the incomparable Heidi Klum. She actually stole that from me. And after a lawsuit, I now get $14 every time she says it. But we're still friends. And we actually hired Heidi Klum, Zach Parson, and Nina Garcia and Tim Gunn to try to come up with a design for what that next fashion forward tuxedo will be post Daniel Craig. Mm. Unfortunately, they thought that it was an avant-garde materials challenge and they made the entire thing out of candy from a New York confectioner. Who can forget the fruit roll-up lapels? So you saw it, Rupert. We, we actually had Daniel Craig's screen test in it, and the seagulls almost enveloped him. I thought that was something only crows would do, but it was on the New York Harbor, and it was not a pretty sight. Craig felled many a bird that day, and it's important to remember that the importance of the tuxedo comes in many forms. It is, in many ways, the first exposure the fans will get to the new Bond even before he or she steps onto the screen, in the movie posters, in the trailers, in the materials that surround it, this suit must suit 
the actor that takes up the mantle. And Rupert, I have spent many a night contemplating the next tuxedo. I oscillate between being something that is very toned down and being something that is very attention getting. It's what you said. It has to be literally the poster child of the James Bond franchise. But his character is that he's a spy. He has to blend in. A fascinating and challenging juxtaposition, George. And I think that especially in the times we live in, the times that are changing, people want James Bond to represent different things. And a tuxedo is an inherently male thing, we can all say. There were talks for a while of having possibly David Bowie play James Bond, you know, to represent this gender non-conformity. May they rest in peace. So this was before Bowie passed away and he actually wanted to direct a film too, but his treatment scared the shit out of us. So we had to go a different direction. If I'm remembering the insider notes, it was an even scarier re-representation of the Labyrinth movie. Yes, uh, the main piece of technology he wanted James Bond to have was a glass orb. It served no purpose. Highly avant-garde. But I think I like this idea of androgyny and James Bond and non-conformity. And so I think, you know, if we're talking about Tux, why not Lady Gaga as a representation of this? A daring choice and one that I believe will find a great deal of support. It is no strange invocation to say that there has been a call for the entertainment of the idea of a lady Bond, a female James Bond, a Jane Bond, you might even say. Let's not go too far with it. Lady Gaga, blending gender, blending fashion, blending face. An interesting choice, George. If you think what she could bring to the James Bond franchise, you know, maybe it's a suit made out of meat. Maybe it is something not made out of food. The possibilities are truly endless. Those really are the two possibilities, yes. But the idea of, of having this tuxedo represent more than just a man who's a spy is intriguing to me. And so I think that she would be a great option. If we're talking about tux a lot, and we have to remind the listeners that these are in isolated chambers, these four T's that we're talking. I'm not giving my endorsement to Lady Gaga or to David Bowie, rest in peace. If we're talking about the best representation, the epitome of a T, I think Lady Gaga was a great choice. Listeners, I hope that gives you a taste of what might come in the rest of the episode. These are not your back of the cereal box brand standard suggestions. And how dare you expect as much? from George Lazenby, these are suggestions that will push the franchise forward and worthy of open-minded consideration, of course. It goes without saying that without formal training as an actor and without a history of doing long-form cinema, Lady Gaga would come with some rough edges, but what edges they would be. George, great suggestion. Might I move now to a topic that we've already talked about in this episode, but it bears repeating the importance of the voice of James Bond, the lines, the charm, the script, the talk. Rupert, aside from Tux, this is how people know and identify James Bond. You need to be able to identify a great Bond with your eyes closed, which is why we always give blindfolds to our testing audiences. From On Her Majesty's Secret Service on, nobody who we've test screened the movie for has actually seen it. The only job is to identify when James Bond is talking. It's hard to even imagine, George, but that speaks 
to just how important the speaking is to the role. You know, it, it takes me back to Idris Elba. You know, he has a gruff accent. He's intimidating. You know who he'd be the second you closed your eyes. Just like me. If you're listening to me with your eyes closed, you know exactly who I am. You go, okay, yep, that's James Bond. I know that. I don't even need to see the film. All I need to do is hear the voice. And that's who we're looking for. Someone with a particular voice that can lend to the greatest spy who ever lived. George, it is with quavering anticipation that I hear what you have to say about what we would hear from the next James Bond. You know, I I like where we're going with the Lady Gaga thing. I'd like to throw my hat in the ring here for Megan McCarthy. You know, she has a great voice. Uh, She already has experience portraying male characters on Saturday Night Live. I think she'd be great. Her voice rings like the Liberty Bell calling out critiques all the way up to the United States White House through her many recognizable impressions. She's a woman with her classic training in comedy, but with the vocal range to play any potential voice-forward role. What a tantalizing pick, George. You know, people forget that Master of Disguise doesn't just mean costumes, it means your voice also. And... What Megan McCarthy brings is her ability to blend those two seamlessly in her sketch comedy background. As we've talked about, comedic actors have a certain ability for portraying dramatic roles, something that does not work in reverse. That is why Roger Moore was so fucking terrible. Exactly. It is like the proverbial umbrella, which can go up a chimney down, but not down a chimney up. I understand this is a controversial pick, Rupert. And I also understand that if out of context... Someone heard me say Megan McCarthy should be James Bond. She would be James Bond. That is how much power I have. You know, I, I almost hesitate how excited I was over Hugh Grant because on the internet after the show is, somebody might think that Hugh Grant is Bond. Hugh Grant himself might hear me say that and think he is James Bond. People take what I say without any salt, without a grain, without a package. However you get your salt, people take my words straight up. I'll tell you that much. And which brings me to the most important part of talk, Rupert, is the character's inner voice. So what I would like to suggest is that moving forward, I portray in every James Bond film a great gazoo-like type character that would be the, the character's conscious. A Rafiki for the series, if you will, a guiding interior monologue which reveals and investigates the mental toil that the job takes on the man or woman. This is an interesting idea. And I think one that regardless of who plays the next Bond will feature prominently because it's been said and will be said again and is said now one more time. George Lazenby, you are the definitive Bond. You're goddamn right I am, Rupert. While I wouldn't want to come back into the role as James Bond, I think having this contribution going forward of being a character that perhaps, you know, only James Bond can see that is guiding him in the correct moral direction throughout the films is a great way to take the franchise. And it gives the people what they want, which is yours truly, George Lazenby. George, if there's one thing I think of when I think of the name George Lazenby, it's the correct moral direction. And listeners, the correct direction for us all is forward, past this commercial break, and onto the final half of the final episode of building a better bond. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Hello, listeners. This is your friend Rupert Carmichael from Building a Better Bond. It is exactly how I would introduce myself for a podcasted advertisement. 
For years, we humble servants of the audio industry have praised the pros and clung to the copy of sponsors that support our various recorded endeavors. Now, Festel Buttersworth and Cynthia Huffles have decided to turn the tables. Voiced Over is a podcast series about podcast ad narration. Together, the linguists break down interstitial advertisements and analyze the inflection, delivery, and form of their spokesmen and spokeswomen. From the syntax to the slogan, they also look at what creates the best podcast ad. Look for special guests, like the guy who wrote the first Squarespace ad copy, or the woman who pioneered recording an ad into your iPhone from a niche yet tourist accessible spot of New York City. All of this and more will be at your earbuds if you subscribe to Voiced Over behind the paywall at voiceoverpodcast.com backslash this costs money. Guess who's having a garage sale? As you may know, listeners, we recorded this entire series at the BBC Studios in London, England, which meant I had to leave my home in Australia for about a month. I didn't want to stay in a hotel, so I had the execs build an exact replica of my house right outside of London. Down to the socks and artwork, every piece of the 16-bedroom mansion was produced identically to Le Chateau de Laez. But now, since I'm headed back to the land down under, I haven't any use for the place, so everything is available for purchase, with proceeds going directly to me to fund whichever amazing venture I set out to do next. Pick up an On Her Majesty's Secret Service poster, or maybe a Ninja Blender. However you choose to show your Lazenby fanmanship is up to you. Just remember to make checks payable directly to me, and not this show or the BBC, and I'm also on Venmo if that's easier. Come on out, and although I won't be anywhere near there, my replica stuff will be, so have at it. And now, back to the final half of the final show of Building a Better Bond. Welcome back, listeners. I hope you enjoyed those words from our sponsors. Maybe you enjoyed them on a smartphone device, or maybe on a laptop computer, or perhaps over the waves of a ham radio. However you came to hear them, it was technology that made it possible. It's technology that makes the show possible. And it's technology, of course, that makes James Bond possible. The tech of 007 has always featured prominently. And as we move into the future, it will only continue to feature more prominently. George, the role of technology has always been important to the role of James Bond. Rupert, it's a pendulum. It swings back and it swings back again. We can all agree that the epitome of technology has been in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Is that correct? It's the fulcrum around which the rest of the genres technology revolves. You know, just like people suggested that Ian Fleming didn't have a character description that fit Idris Elba. That can be applied to technology. You know, Ian Fleming didn't know the echelons of different devices that we would employ in these films. I think that also is applied to me, Rupert. You know, I could say that Ian Fleming never once said the words je ne sais quoi to describe Bond, but that is how anyone would describe me. And of course, I am the best James Bond. So we can't always look to the books for every minute detail of this franchise. Very well said, George. The film franchise has evolved well beyond Fleming's original vision. There is no way he could have seen just how important and impactful the series would become, especially once it undertook the acting prowess of one George Lazenby. Now, George, to see what type of actor would mesh well with the technology of the future, you must first imagine the technology of the future. It's true, and it's hard to do. We stripped it way back for Daniel Craig. You know, we we went from Pierce Brosnan's ridiculous gadgets to almost nothing with Daniel Craig, and that was a very conscious decision. So what's next? The only natural progression is to start building it back up 
in a fresh way, right? So we really want to do a throwback technology that's been in, in the works a long time. You know, anachronistic pieces, perhaps steampunk. Uh, maybe all the technology is somehow Rebus-based. A strategy that would blend a future focus with a nod to the past nostalgia of course, is one of the most potent feelings a film in 2017 can evoke. You know, I, I think what is often lost in Bond is that he is very smart. He has the intellectual aptitude of a Bruce Wayne, you know, but they rarely show Bond trying to crack riddles and decipher clues. And I think we need to bring that back into the technology sphere of James Bond. What type of actor or actress could capture such a nuanced view? of the technological world, not just a user of the technology, but a tinkerer, a problem solver themselves. That's exactly right, Rupert. Think about who is the best today at solving technological clues for the greater good. And I can point you only to two men, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. The sound you heard, listeners, were your collective breaths catching in your throat. Bond now expands beyond even the entertainment spheres we've seen in this episode alone. The music industry, the world of comedy, and now the business world. Tech mogul Mark Zuckerberg and future dreamer turned current tinkerer Elon Musk. Two giants of industry. But are they giants of the screen? George, defend these suggestions. Acting can always be taught if you have certain qualities. And with me at the helm... I think it would be offensive to say that I couldn't sculpt anyone into an actor. Rupert, if I wanted you to be, you would be James Bond. My heart is fluttering. Of course, nobody wants that. But I'm saying I could do that if I wanted to do. The same thing applies to Mark Zuckerberg, to Elon Musk. This may be a little self-serving, but in the next decade, I would like a James Bond filmed on Mars. Only Elon Musk can offer us that. In the next decade, I would like a James Bond car to be a Tesla. Only Elon Musk can offer us that. In the next decade, Rupert, I would like that it be a scene where James Bond is trying to decipher between real and fake news on Facebook. Only Mark Zuckerberg can give us that. As the popular phrase goes, you don't get to 007 friends without making a few enemies. This is an opinion that might, George, earn you the ire of those who think the role is destined to be played by those with a thespian's training. Rupert, I was a mechanic, and then I was a model. I don't have formal acting training, and so I made it up myself. And we all know how that worked out, right? It worked out for the best. If there was a word that meant better than best, I think that's how I would describe it. I think we could also do a lot of great things with Mark and Elon on screen, uh, similar to how the Olsen twins portrayed Michelle in Full House, we could swap back and forth between who is playing Bond. Of course, they don't really look anything alike, but I think with proper CGI and motion tracking software, we would be able to make that happen. They could both be on the screen as James Bond. George, I'd love to reference now a drawing that you made for the purposes of this episode. Because we're an audio-only production, I will have to describe it. Is this amenable, George? Uh, yeah, of course, Rupert. Imagine a scene on a distant Martian landscape. It portrays... Uh, I believe the facial structure belies that it is Elon Musk in this particular illustration. He wears a monocle, a top hat, and a eight-and-a-half-foot suit of steam-powered armor. He walks around it like an iron giant, and he holds in his hand a very, 
very tiny nine millimeter pistol. You forgot to mention that I did the whole thing on red construction paper because you know, it's Mars. With red pen making it almost impossible to discern the finer details. He's stealthy. It's espionage. He has to blend in. And is this some race of unclad extraterrestrial females? Oh, you better believe it, Rupert. We'll leave those more graphic descriptions for your off radio channels, George. But it goes to show what sort of a mashup of industrialism, futurism, and technological leadership you envision for the future of this franchise. Rupert, with Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk taking James Bond into the future, I don't think anything else would propel people to be inspired about technology more. People watch James Bond as we've discussed for the technology, and we've strategically removed it from the Daniel Craig films. So it was only natural to bring it back up and to rehype it in the most coherent way possible. And that is with two different people who've never acted before portraying a character on screen set on an extraterrestrial landscape. Couldn't have said it better myself. Who doesn't look at a bemonocled Marlon Muskerberg and think this is cohesive storytelling? And cohesive storytelling always comes through in the details. The details make the greater picture because without them, the canvas remains too blank the all-time most important accoutrement to James Bond is his or her famous in-hand martini, an angular glass, a single olive, and two ounces of clear liquid. George, so much can be told through such a simple mechanism, and it is through this fourth tea, the teeny, that we must investigate who can bring the details to life best as James Bond. Rupert, as you said, a teeny is a detail of James Bond, so I think... In order for it to be more prominent in the public eye, we need someone that can not only bring this detail to the forefront, but also represent this detail on screen and off screen. Do you see what I'm saying here? I'll confess that I don't, George. We need someone that already has a lot of experience with alcohol and endorsement. So, Rupert, I urge you to look no further than Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey. A man to whom which we can look to for the industry standard in career resurgence. From failure to launch, he launched a new career as the most influential actor of 2015. Of course, you're referring to True Detective and his performance in that. So we've already seen his ability to cross over into dramatic roles. Here's my one catch, Rupert, which I think illustrates this idea of 4T's endorsement very clearly. Matthew McConaughey would be a great choice for Teeny. But I would have a stipulation that he could not talk as James Bond because his S's are far too whistly. That is a far river to ford between the southern Dixie-esque pronunciation present in all of McConaughey's roles to the crisp, smooth, England continental accent that is expected from James Bond. As we said, we screen all James Bond films for test audiences who are blindfolded. But if you are blindfolded and hear a McConaughey S... That is akin to a waterboard torture in some nations. Geneva frowns upon the practice. And if you could imagine, listeners, for yourself, hearing 007 pronounced multiple times over the course of a film, you can understand why this is a fascinating, if not flawed, option. But what is it about McConaughey that makes him great for the role, even if portrayed 
as a Chaplin-esque silent film. I think the possibilities are endless to continue to solidify and codify that relationship between James Bond and the teeny. And Matthew McConaughey, of course, has done wonders for Wild Turkey. Uh, he's started endorsing alcohol brands so fervently, Rupert, he recently endorsed a half a can of gasoline because he thought it was a new brand of alcohol. So when you start to solidify this relationship off screen, it becomes all the more evident on screen. And that is how you make a fucking Hollywood blockbuster Rupert. It transcends the screen and goes into real life. George, it is a eye-opening suggestion and I think speaks to an interesting phenomenon true across all your points. You, unlike the masses, seem to think that we needn't have an English person in line to play the role. Now, of course, that makes sense coming from someone who is not an Englishman himself. That's very true. I would like to have a brief footnote on that. I don't care if he's English. I would just like him to not be Australian. The people have spoken. I'm the Bond from Down Under, the Aussie Bond. I don't want someone infringing on that. But otherwise, you can be whoever you want and be James Bond. I don't care. This, listeners, if it hadn't already been cemented in your mind, should outline to you just how qualified George Lazenby is. Not only is he the definitive master of the craft, but he also approaches it with an open mind. He cares only for the quality of the portrayal. Man, woman, whatever race, whatever nationality, you can be James Bond if you have what it takes if you have the four T's. And Rupert, I understand that people might be upset with my choice of Matthew McConaughey as a selection for Bond for Teeny with the stipulation of not being able to talk. But I think there are plenty of other great people who endorse alcohol brands who would be great James Bond. For instance, Sean Puffy Combs would be great. Or that guy who plays the most interesting man in the world. These, of course, giants in their own industries, be they the music world or the world of advertisement, but neither possess the overall acting chops that McConaughey also blends like a fine rum and coke. I would argue that McConaughey could do a better job without saying a word as James Bond than the most interesting man in the world could. But just so people don't freak out, I want to give other options. And again, this is about a hypothetical scenario. You know, we're not endorsing any of these people to be the next James Bond again because I have far too much power. And we cannot have this episode be out of context. But in the realm of the four T's, isolating them, anything is possible. Anything is possible. That line should ring like a bell in the hearts and minds of all of our listeners as you reflect on what has been a monumental journey through one of the most monumental franchises ever to grace the silver screen. We started, of course... In the most humble of roots, with Barry Nelson on a hour-long TV special based on the works of a humble author named Ian Fleming. And now we've come to such a far apex. 26 films, five decades, two zeros and a seven. It is James Bond's legacy that it has transcended its own roots and become something so foundational. And the man we can all thank for it. George Lazenby, he has illuminated as he has over the course of the last eight episodes that it takes something special to do such a special thing as to be Agent 007. And today we've investigated four or more individuals who embody important things about the character, be it the suit, be it the speech, be it sipping a martini or pressing buttons on a screen. 
these things in isolation have champions in current culture that might highlight them as options, but we must consider that it is not each of these things that make James Bond. It is all of these things that make James Bond. And in that, George Lazenby has no equal. We can only hope to wield the torch that hangs in his shadow with respect, aplomb, and a doing our best attitude. And here with us, as he has been for eight episodes, is the man, the myth, the legend himself, George Lazenby. George, would you care, if you could, to summarize what it takes to build a better bond in your own words? Your last words. Rupert, unfortunately, as we've discussed, I, of course, can't come back to play James Bond. I'm a one-and-done kind of guy, and I can do more behind the scenes as creative director. And the most important thing, in my opinion, is acknowledging that On Her Majesty's Secret Service was the best film and is untouchable, and that Bond now needs to adapt with the times more than ever. But people are worried that as more pieces of Bond get altered and changed over time, it won't be their Bond anymore. And it reminds me of a famous paradox. Now, Rupert, please confirm that I have no note cards, that I came up with this on my own, and that I don't have a copy of Philosophy and Logic 101 turned to page 137 on my lap. Under those very specific parameters, I can confirm. Great, thank you. Now, sometimes this experiment is referred to as Plutarch's Ship of Theseus, and others know it as John Locke's Grandfather's Socks. I figured socks would be more relatable to our listeners than large nautical vessels, and I liked how it rhymes. As John Locke posits... You get a pair of your granddad's socks as a gift, presumably because your family has fallen on particularly hard times. I can only assume. Now, as they get older and older, you replace a hole with a patch. As time goes on, you patch another hole. And another. And another. Until, frankly, there's more patch than sock. So, Rupert, the question is, are these socks the same ones your grandfather stuck his sweaty gams into? Or are they something entirely new? A patchwork tapestry of poor podiatric hygiene. Now, I think... On the one hand, if you like the socks, great. Keep wearing them and patching them up. Maybe you took them on a hike or just wore them sitting by the fire. They made a day or an evening just a bit more memorable, so they serve their purpose. And if you don't like them, hey, buy a new pair of socks. What are you doing with a granddad's shitty hand-me-downs anyway? You can get a pack of five for a dollar thirty at Target, so what the hell are you complaining about? Either way, guys, they're just socks. You'll have a lot of them in your life. I have a special tailor that makes mine custom every single day. They have a picture of Roger Moore's face in the soles. The point is, I wear them and step on Roger Moore's grinning mug because that's what makes me happy. So do what makes you happy, and don't waste your damn life talking about other people's socks. Words to live by George Lazenby. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with those words that we, humbly and otherwise, bid you adieu into this great night, the unknown of the future of the James Bond franchise. But now fear not, for, as George himself has said, there will come more fires in the night, and there will come more great bonds to portray the role in the future. This has been a production in conjunction with the PBS and the BBC. On behalf of them both, I am Rupert Carmichael. I'm George Lazenby. Good night. Good night.